Uh, I'm going to open our time by telling you a story of Miriam. Uh, this is not Miriam who comes to church here. This is a different type of Miriam. Uh, this story is an excerpt from Evangelism as Exiles, the book we're reading as a men's and women's group. So it, it functions a little bit as a plug as well. Uh, truth be told, but it's a really good story. So Miriam is a young Christian. Uh, just to give you some bearings, she's a young Christian who lives in a Muslim country in Central Asia. And so the excerpt goes like this. Miriam is a spunky young woman with full dark chocolate eyes and even darker hair. At 17 years old, she was everything you'd expect from a teenage girl, but she has a steadfast passion for the gospel. Only a few months into her newfound faith, Miriam was already an ardent evangelist, regularly telling the gospel to classmates and friends. One late afternoon, Miriam got called to her principal's office. He called her into his office because of her outspoken faith. He threatened Miriam with expulsion, with public shaming, and even with the possibility of reporting her to a local prosecutor on charges of missionary activity. Imagine hearing that from your principal. So Miriam's run-in with her with the administrator began earlier that day through an interaction with her teacher. He had been lecturing on Christianity, explaining that Christians believe in three different gods, explaining that Christians are guilty of shirk which is the worst possible sin in Islam. They're guilty of this because they worship Jesus. He explained that Christians accept four different insult or gospels that are corrupt and contradictory. And his lecture was likely one that the teacher repeated many times, but one that it's doubtful he ever encountered any kind of pushback. But on that day, at some point in his lesson, Miriam boldly raised her hand. And she asked if she could amend his description. She explained that Christians didn't believe exactly as he suggested. And the teacher, taken aback, then asked with impertinence, well, how would you know? Well, in her reply, Miriam revealed she had actually read the Bible. She even had one with her. So before a classroom of 38 students, and a high school without a single other Christian, Miriam boldly defended the gospel. She asserted that Christians believe in, the only, in only one God. She clarified that the four gospels demonstrate a unified message of how Jesus is the Christ, how he is the Messiah who fulfills all the Old Testament promises, promises from prophets Muslims claim to accept. She even began to describe how she came to find certain Islamic understandings to be unconvincing and untenable. But before she could reason further, the teacher abruptly stopped her and sent her to the principal's office. Now, after hearing this story, we might have wondered, why would Miriam do this? Well, she said that in the moment she was overcome with the sense that her friends were following falsehoods. So she had been waiting and praying for some kind of opportunity, and she saw this one, and she took it. Now today we return to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and Miriam reminds me a lot of the Samaritan woman. Jesus just told the Samaritan woman that he is in fact the Christ, the Messiah, the one she's been waiting for. And she doesn't have fully matured faith in him yet, but she's convinced of Jesus enough to tell others about him. 
And now think about the Samaritan woman's situation. She is now the only believer in Jesus in her town. And so what would happen next when she goes back? Or just a little bit of background a reminder. The Samaritan woman already has a past that fills her with shame. So you'd have to wonder, would anybody from her town take her seriously? And on top of that, this Samaritan woman would go back to her Samaritan town and proclaim a Jewish Messiah. So if she already was in trouble, perhaps this would send her over the ledge and the town would just cast her out and be done with her forever. So what happens? Well, let's read from John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. If you're looking at the Bibles provided, you can follow along, I believe, around page 889 or so. 888. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. We get some of the main point of this passage like this. Jesus sends his people to scatter his word in order to gather a harvest of those who receive eternal life. Jesus sends his people to scatter his word in order to gather a harvest of those who receive eternal life. Christian brother and sister, do you know your job description? Do you know your job description? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about John the Baptist. We likened a Christian's job description to what John the Baptist does. John the Baptist uh, prepared people for Jesus, and he pointed people to Jesus. We said that could sum up well what Christians are meant to do. But the Bible describes our jobs in other ways besides that. And yet, in fact, it uses several different images or metaphors. The Bible calls us fishers of men, for example. The Bible calls us ambassadors of the kingdom. The Bible calls us heralds of good news. And here today, this passage calls us workers in the harvest. And this part of John 4 helps us to live out who Jesus has already made us to be. Live out who Jesus has already made us to be. So let's dive in first by looking at the heart of a harvest worker. The heart of a harvest worker. Where 
go look at verses 27 to 30. Now, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? If you died tonight, stood before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? One of my favorites, one I use often. Can I ask you a question? What do you think about Jesus? Now, faithful Christians know that we should speak to other people about Jesus, but if you're like me, you often just don't know what to say. So that's why it can be helpful to have questions prepared in advance. Yet for as helpful as questions and methods can be, they do come with some pitfalls. Questions and methods when it comes to talking about Jesus can become formulas. They can lead us to talk to every person in the same way. Questions and methods can keep us from listening well, and they can keep us from meeting people where they are. Questions and methods can even turn the gospel into cold, rehearsed facts. They can keep us in the realm of why we need Jesus, which is good and necessary and important, but we also need to go to the realm and explain why people should want Jesus, not just why they need him. So for the Samaritan woman, we learn what a good harvest worker in Christ's field looks like. And I bet it's not what you think. A good harvest worker isn't someone with just the right questions and methods. A good harvest worker isn't someone with respected credentials. A good harvest worker isn't someone with polished speech. She isn't someone with lofty rhetoric. She isn't someone with thorough reasoning. So what is a good harvest worker? Well, a good harvest worker is someone who has a heart that is captivated heart that is captivated by Christ. Let's make two observations of the Samaritan woman from verses 27 to 30. Just two observations. First observation. The Samaritan woman is not defined by what other people think about her. She's not defined by what others think of her. So just when Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, then the disciples return. Now, if you think the disciples' timing is bad, their attitude is even worse. Jesus shocks them. I wonder, what could you possibly want from this woman? They wonder, Jesus, why are you wasting your time? Now, nobody said that, John records, but they all were thinking it. And John knows they were thinking it because I bet he was among the ones who was thinking it. So the disciples agreed with the cultural customs of the day. And not only do Jews do not, not have no dealings with Samaritans, but also men, especially rabbis like Jesus, did not deal with women. To them, back then, it, it was a waste of time. To them, it was a distraction from real ministry. But Jesus didn't follow the custom of man. He followed the truth of God. This woman was not a waste of time. This woman has dignity. She has worth. She has value. Because she's made in God's image. And this, what Jesus will do, is so like God. The one who the disciples disregarded is the one through whom Jesus would save almost an entire city. And this application comes up a lot in the Bible, which must mean that we really 
This application answers questions that we might ask ourselves. And I wonder if you ask yourselves a question, how could God ever use somebody like me? How could God ever use somebody who's done the things that I've done? How could God ever use somebody with kind of my lack of ability and knowledge? How can God ever use somebody usable? Well, the Samaritan woman who comes in a long line of figures in the Bible. A line of people whom the world regards as weak, but through whom God shows his strength. The Samaritan woman reminds me a lot of you, if you're familiar with her story. Ruth is a pagan from Moab who clings to her Jewish mother-in-law after her husband dies. Ruth goes to a strange land. She goes back to Israel with her mother-in-law and worships the one true God. Ruth ends up teaching her mother-in-law what faithfulness to the one true God looks like. Ruth ends up giving birth to a son who is in the line of David, a line that would lead to the Messiah, Jesus. Just like the Samaritan woman, God used Ruth mightily, despite what other people thought about her. So that's the first observation. Second observation of the Samaritan woman is that this woman is captivated by Jesus. Look at verse 28 again. Verse 28. She is so caught up with Christ that she leaves behind her water jar and she goes back to town. Now, those might seem like small details that we skip over real quick, but actually, I think, really significant. She leaves behind her water jar and goes back to town. She's finally understood the lesson that Jesus has so patiently taught her. There is more important water than the water that sustains physical life. She can get that water later. First, she knows that she has to go tell others about the source of living water that she has found. Now, if she had taken her water jar with her, it would have slowed her down because that word for water jar is the same word used for the jars back in the wedding in Cana. These would have been big jars. Whether empty or full, it would have been hard to move around with carrying all of these things. And so here, this woman, here is a good harvest worker. She knows what might get in her way of her service to Christ. She knows what will slow her down. My Christian brother and sister, this is a convicting question, but it's a straightforward question. Do you love Jesus above all else? Of course, all of us would answer yes, but the trouble is our lives don't often match up with that answer. If we love Jesus above all else, then we have to search our hearts for the attitudes and the habits and the distractions that slow down our service to Jesus. What slows us down? What is the water jar that we need to leave behind? You might remember this verse from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. This woman knows what would get in her way of her service to Christ, and she leaves it behind. But another detail, too, we might notice. So she's captivated with Christ. Now consider the town to where she returns. Consider where she's going back. Just on that same afternoon, I don't know, maybe an hour earlier, 
she came to the well alone to avoid the people from this town. And now she goes back to this same town that she once avoided, a town where her reputation was well known, where she had loads of shame. That's where she's going back. Friends, we can be honest and real with one another, but you and I, we've missed opportunities to represent Christ, haven't we? Haven't you had opportunities to speak the name of Jesus to someone and you didn't take it? I don't want to have. And we've we've shied away from so many of these, often because we don't want to lose people's approval. We've shied away because people, maybe people know what we used to be like. We're afraid that they would call us hypocrites or other things. So the question is, how do we overcome the shame that silences us before other people? How do we overcome it? Well, maybe like the Samaritan woman, we must come face to face with the real Jesus. That our hearts have to be so captivated by Christ that the approval of other people just doesn't matter anymore. We say Jesus is too amazing for us to stay and we look at the Samaritan woman's speech, and we can take uh, guidance from her. her. Her speech isn't impressive, is it? I don't think it is. It's not perfect, and it may not be perfect, but you know what? Her love for Jesus leads her to say something. She says something, and look at she speaks out of her own experience with Jesus. You can do that. She speaks the truth about Jesus that she knows. You can do that. She speaks with humility. She invites people to investigate. You can speak with humility. She asks a question. She doesn't force a statement. You can ask people questions. She speaks with honesty. She's candid about what everybody else knows about her. He told me all that I ever did. You can speak with honesty. It's likely a combination of all these factors is what got people to leave that town and come to the well of living. And so reflecting on this, my friend, if you are not captivated by Jesus, your heart is dull toward him, I wonder if you really know him. And I invite you, come and see the one who is the light of the world. Come and see the one who loves you and gave his life for you. My Christian brother and sister, I know that there are spiritually dry and difficult seasons of our lives. I know that. I won't deny it. But this year, may this be the year that we pray that God rekindles our hearts with a love for Christ, that we would be captivated again. This is the beginning of effective service for Him. Our hearts, this is the beginning. Tactics, methods, and knowledge those are not the beginning of effective service to Jesus. They might be helpful, but you won't use your tactics or your methods or your knowledge if you don't have a heart for Christ. So, that's point number one, the heart of the hardest work. As we transition to point number two, I have a question for you. Uh, does, does anyone else here have uh, a hard time choosing what you want for dinner, especially when your whole family has to decide? If you go out to dinner frequently, like, where do you want to go for dinner? Uh, is that a constant debate in your household? I don't know, maybe, maybe 
it's not for you, but maybe you're unique. And this, this observation is not original to me, so I don't take credit for it. So, so maybe you've had a conversation like this. You ask someone in your family, what do you want for dinner? And they tell you, I don't know, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> and you say, I don't care, it's up to you. <laughs> and they say, well, how about Mexican? Nah, we just had that. <laughs> how about Italian? I got a little heartburn right now. What the heck? How about a burger? That's a little fattening. I'm trying to trim down. Well, what are you in the mood for then? I don't care. It's up to you. <laughs> Every single one of us has an appetite. We need food. And we crave food. I know it's getting close to noon, and I know it's probably a bad idea for me to bring it up. <laughs> and our appetites develop beyond a simple craving. We develop tastes for certain foods, cravings for certain things, some of them healthy and probably more of them unhealthy. Jesus uses this human phenomenon to teach his disciples about the obstacle that exists in the hardest workers, the obstacle that exists in so look at verse 31. The disciples reappear as the main focus there. And the disciples take the form of a persistent Italian grandmother. And they urge Jesus, eat something, eat something. And maybe we can cut them some slack. And after all, Jesus from earlier in John 4, we read that he was weary from their traveling. And Jesus responds, he tells them, I'm not concerned about food at the moment. I have another kind of food. And as has been the pattern in John, the disciples just don't get it. They think Jesus refers to physical food. And so they wonder if Jesus has used his DoorDash app to order hot wings while they were gone. No, Jesus tells them, I have a different kind of food. I hunger for something else. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's good to notice, as often when you're reading the Bible, what Jesus doesn't say here. What he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that he never eats physical food. There are plenty of times in the Gospels when Jesus eats and drinks. And 1 Timothy 4 is a, a good chapter to remember. 1 Timothy 4 says God created food to be received with thanksgiving. It's a good gift. But what Jesus does say here is that he hungers for serving his Father more than he hungers for physical food. I wonder if us Americans can honestly say the same thing. That we hunger for serving God more than we hunger for physical food. Jesus just proved it. Jesus set aside his hunger and thirst for the sake of caring for a broken woman. His hunger to see her drink living water and eat the bread of life outweighed his own hunger for physical food. So can you start to see the obstacle in the disciples' hearts, in the hardest workers' hearts, the obstacle that's there? They have bad appetites. They have bad appetites. They don't have a taste or a craving for the healthiest food. The food of living for God, the food of enjoying his presence. Instead, they crave and eat too much junk food. And granted, yeah, not all of that junk food's bad, some of it they can eat. But they can also develop tastes and cravings that are selfish and worldly. 
All of us can develop tastes and cravings that crowd out our hunger for the Lord, that spoil our appetite for God. The Bible warns us about this all the time. Give you three examples. One we read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus quotes it when Satan tempts him in the wilderness. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's our nourishment for our hearts. Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Do not be anxious about these things. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There are things that can spoil our appetite for the Lord. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away with all its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we have cravings. We can eat too much food. It spoils our appetite. That's the opposite. So, ask you, how's your appetite? How's your appetite? What are you hungry for? Is your appetite for serving the Lord lacking? Is it deficient? Well, my friend, could it be because you've filled up on other things? Perhaps it's time you want to recapture that appetite, perhaps it's time to scale back on some of the things you fill up on. Perhaps it's time to scale back on activity as much as you can handle. Perhaps it's time to scale back on distraction, looking at your phone every minute. Perhaps it's time to scale back on entertainment. Perhaps it's time to scale back on stuff. You know, this is one of the benefits of fasting. Fasting reminds us where true, where our true hunger should lie. And yeah, we can fast from food, but you can fast from other things. Consider fasting from social media. Consider fasting from your phone. Consider fasting from TV. Heck, even consider fasting from all screens for like a night. Because friends, I think it's time to reset our appetites. Start craving good things again. Because if we keep this obstacle in place of a bad appetite, it will have a negative effect. Because if we don't hunger for Christ, then we won't hunger for other people to know Christ. I mean, that's probably why you and I don't share the gospel as we should. We don't hunger for Jesus. If we really did, we would talk about but if this, if this hunger isn't in place, we don't hunger for other people to know Christ, then we won't notice the harvest of people who are in front of us. This is the point Jesus makes in verses 35 to 38. He tells the disciples to look in front of them. There is a harvest to be had in Samaria. The harvest is ready right now. He tells them, you don't have to wait for the crops to grow. They're ready. 
The reapers are having success. The fruit has already appeared. Jesus says, the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Verse 37, he likely refers to John the Baptist and himself. When John prepared the way, now people are coming to Jesus. And now he's sending his disciples to gather fruit from that harvest. But in order for the disciples to go into the harvest, they'll have to hunger for Christ and Christ's work. They'll have to be less caught up with the world and more caught up with Jesus. Friend, I wonder, no, I don't wonder, I know. There is a harvest in front of you and me that we're missing. That's right in front of us that we don't see. Because we're too busy looking at other things. There is a harvest in front of us that we're missing. Jesus sends us to all the nations of the earth to make disciples. Friend, where will you start? What is the harvest in front of you? Friend, will you start with one person? You start with one person. This year, will you tell one person about the only one who can save them from judgment and give them eternal life? Will you draw close to them? Will you care for them? Will you act as Jesus did for the Samaritan woman? That's what we're trying to do in this Who's Your One Wheel. We want to help one another with this. We want to get wisdom from one another with this. We want to pray for each other with this. Because look at just through one person, through one Samaritan lady, Jesus saves nearly an entire city. What is the harvest in front of you? Christian, Jesus has sent you. You are a disciple. Jesus has sent you. What is the harvest in front of you? Parents in the room, maybe you feel really stretched thin. And you might know this already, but we need reminders. Your primary harvest field is your children. Please continue to sow the seed of the gospel through your words and your attitudes and your actions. And do that patiently. Those who work, could the harvest in front of you be your co-workers? I mean, I know that can be kind of tricky, that will take some depth and tact to navigate, but you, you can start somewhere. Friends, could the harvest in front of you be a group of Cleveland that is neglected and forgotten? Could you think about maybe the harvest being a child who doesn't have a mom or a dad? You go to the harvest of fostering a child this year. You start that process. There is a harvest in Cleveland of women who are abused and alone. There is a harvest in Cleveland of people who are fresh out of prison. There is a harvest in Cleveland of kids who live in broken and rough houses. There is a harvest in Cleveland of refugees who are living in a new country. There is a harvest in Cleveland of international students who don't have any friends. Friends, the laborers of these harvests are few. Few. You go. You go. I understand some of our excuses are bad. I get it. But I don't want us to keep consuming the goods of the world. That keep us from going to these harvests. You know, all of the areas I've mentioned, look at the bulletin board. We have connections to all of them. Will you go this year? I'm going to ask this one too. Could the harvest in front of you be another country? Could the harvest in front of you be another country? Seriously. You can join an effort to reach a group of people who have little to no access to the gospel. 
You don't have to be a preacher to do this. You don't have to be a, a pastor to do this. You can leverage the skill you have simply just in an international context. I know we got people who do trades. I know we got people who know computers. I know we got engineers. I know we got doctors. People in other countries need those things. Maybe you could just leverage the time that you have if you're freshly retired. It'd be a good way to spend your retirement. Maybe you're at the entrance of a new career right out of college. It'd be a good way to spend your life. Could the harvest in front of you be another country? Obviously, it's, be, it's a conversation beyond this morning, but I at least want to put a little pebble in your shoe about it. Now, if all this is overwhelming, being a worker in the harvest in front of you, well, I can't pretend to fix it in just one sentence. But I would say, friends, we should ask God to make Jesus so precious to us that the risk of making him known just fades away. And I would tell you also, that there is hope that you can rise above the weights and distractions of the world. Just look at the disciples. Look at the disciples in this story. They're misunderstanding, they're lazy. Jesus will make these guys fishers of men. And some of these guys will even return to Samaria in Acts 8 where they will make known the crucified and risen Savior. Yes, there is an obstacle in them, just like there is an obstacle in us, but Christ overcame it. He can do the same for you. Let's pray that he does. And just look at what can happen when he does. Verse 39. Verse 39 shows us that the harvest is plentiful in forbidden Samaria. Many people believe that Jesus is the Savior. They are a case study of why John wrote this book. They believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, they have life in his name. And we look at the last paragraph, verses 39 and 42. The main emphasis of that last paragraph is not so much the harvest itself. Rather, the emphasis lies on how the harvest came about, how the harvest grew. Notice how it explains the Samaritan's faith. Verse 39 says the Samaritans believe because of the woman's testimony about Jesus. And then people come to Jesus. Jesus spends two days with them, and more people believe. Why do they believe? Well, verse 41, many more believed because of his word. So how does the harvest grow? How does God give faith? Through people announcing the word of Christ. That is how the harvest grows. Probably know this verse, Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The question here isn't how to draw a crowd. The question is how to view the harvest of faith. Because what we win people with is what we win people to. We want to win people with, not we want to win people not with flash, not with fluff. We want to win people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's why we preach the Bible. You know, when we try to answer the question of how Christ builds his church, we get that answer from the Bible, not with what works. In the book of Acts, people believe in Jesus across different cities in the Mediterranean world. And new churches pop up in these cities. And how does Acts describe that expansion? How does it describe it? What's the refrain that comes about again and again? It says, the word advanced and increased. 
This is how the harvest grows. The harvest grows through announcing the word of Christ. So my friend, if you're overwhelmed at being a worker in the harvest, well then make your confidence be God's word, not in your ability. This is why we should have scripture stored up in our hearts. We store it there so that it can be on our lips. This is why we say our character and our actions must complement the words we say. But we must say words. The harvest grows through announcing the word of Christ. So let me ask you a few questions. You can answer these. They're not rhetorical. Okay? You can answer yes or no. Do you believe that Jesus is worth knowing? Okay, good. Why do you feel very enthusiastic about <laughs> Do you believe Jesus is still building his church? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus can still raise up a harvest like he did in Samaria? Yes. Now, let me clarify something, a misunderstanding that you and I might have. Now, God might build that harvest by sending people to us. He might do that. We pray for this, of course. But you know what I've observed? And it's probably true across all churches. That at least three quarters of the people who visit us already believe in Jesus. And all are just coming from a different church. And we welcome those people with open arms. But notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't say the harvest will come to us. He says we must go to the harvest. And we talked about this, the, consider the Samaritan woman. I bet she wouldn't have come to church. Jesus had to go find her. And I bet you know people who would sooner share a meal with you than would share a seat next to you at church. I'm not saying don't invite them, but I am saying we must go to them and announce the word about Christ. This is how Jesus builds the hardest faith. Because if Jesus can save the Samaritans, he can save them. He is, as the Samaritans realize, the Savior of the world. Now we opened our time talking about Miriam from Central Asia, and um, I'll close our time by talking about her as well. Now, uh, do you know how Miriam first came to faith is that she got a hold of the Bible and Christians explained the good news of Jesus to her. But Miriam didn't believe right away. The Christians who gave her a Bible and explained the gospel to her, they knew it was risky. Miriam was still 17, but she was really adamant. I, I want to know the message of Christianity. It's rare. And in that country, it's illegal to proselytize a minor. So to honor the law and to honor her mom, the Christians who shared the gospel with her set up a meeting with Miriam and her mom. And they continued to meet with Miriam and her mom regularly to discuss the Bible. They did this over the course of months because the hardest work is often patient work. But within months, Miriam believed and was baptized. Three years later, three years, her mom also believed and was baptized. And it's just one more headache. 